I'm Rebecca Achangajulu Bushell, and I was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. I'm a former British champion and world number one, but I quit the sport just before the 2012 Olympic Games at just 17. I'll be navigating you through the waters of my swimming world, as I remember it and as it exists now. In hosting this series, I'll also tell you more about my story whilst we explore a question I've often been asked. Why do we swim? Welcome to Physical Capital, a series centered around the human relationship with swimming. What draws us to it? How do we use it? What do we gain from it? And what can it take from us? We'll be looking at swimming from multiple angles to help paint a complete picture of the sport. We're going to be exploring swimming through the prism of physical capital, discussing the physical attributes that can give you an advantage in the water and how they've been used to achieve greatness, but also how they can be affected and influenced by politics, geography, and the unequal distribution of resources. But most importantly, we'll be speaking to swimmers, from those that push themselves to their limits in the swimming pool and in open water, to those that swim for fun and for pleasure, and those who document its history. It's a widely perpetuated stereotype that black people can't swim. On paper, the statistics appear to back up this perceived notion. Sport England reports that 95% of black adults and 80% of black children in England don't swim, with very similar statistics within Asian communities. And according to the World Health Organization, people from ethnic minorities are at an increased risk of drowning. But I, and the many other swimmers featured on this podcast, are proof that given the opportunity, knowledge and access, black and brown people absolutely can swim. So where has this dangerous myth come from? And how do we change this negative and often fatal narrative? We think the first kind of written account of surfing is written in Hawaii by a surgeon on James Cook's expedition. But it's not, it's actually in Africa by this German guy in sometime in the 1660s. Digging deeper, I found that, you know, Africans must have been surfing for a thousand years or more. Oh my God, I had one woman one time tell me that a, a swimming teacher told her that she couldn't swim because black people had like heavy bottom and hips and they sink in the water. Swim England found that on average, only 32% of the South Asian community in England are able to swim 25 meters unaided compared to the national average of 80%. Random question. Mm. How often did you cry in your goggles? Oh, girl. <laughs> After I moved to the UK, I didn't see many people that looked like me at the pool. I was the only black person in my swimming school. I was often the only black person behind the blocks. And then I was the first black woman to swim for Great Britain. Swimming, as a sport at all levels, is open to a very specific profile of person. Usually white, lower middle to middle class, has sport, possibly swimming in their family, and one parent who maybe doesn't work so they can support with the driving and the time commitment. This is obviously a very specific demographic, and one that is not necessarily as broad and as inclusive as it could be. So why and how is race impacting performance in the pool? Throughout my swimming career, 
I lost count of how many times I heard people say, but black people can't swim. To get to the roots of where this myth came from, I spoke to history professor Kevin Dawson, author of Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture in the African Diaspora, within which Kevin considers how enslaved Africans carried aquatic skills to the Americas and chronicles the experiences of enslaved maritime workers and the cultural impact this had on swimming across the Atlantic and beyond. I'm a history professor at the University of California, Merced, and my research considers how enslaved black people in the early modern period, basically from the 1400s to the mid-1800s, recreated and reimagined African aquatic practices throughout the Atlantic world. So I was working on a different project, actually. I was working on a project on the American Civil War and started finding accounts of enslaved people swimming and canoeing and things like that. And I always had an interest in swimming and surfing growing up in Southern California. And so realizing that today there's these perceptions that African-Americans don't swim and don't boat, and yet I'm finding all these sources of them doing that is what really drew me into this project. It's basically just looking at every account of Africa, every European travel account of Africa that I could find every European North American account of slavery in North America and the Caribbean and just kind of shifting through and looking for any mentions of, you know, swimming, diving, uh, underwater diving, canoeing, canoe making, all those sorts of things. What were some of the most surprising discoveries you made during your research? Two things that I found were that Africans were surfing. We think the first kind of written account of surfing is written in Hawaii by a surgeon on James Cook's expedition. But it's not. It's actually in Africa by this German guy in sometime in the 1660s. Digging deeper, I found that, you know, Africans must have been surfing for a thousand years or more. And so that really blew me away. And I found a number of accounts. Another thing that was really interesting is like we always are kind of looking at bigness, right, scale and modernity as being kind of the solutions for all things. And so what was really interesting was that I was working with a, an English scholar, Miranda Kaufman. We were researching Henry VIII's flagship, the Mary Rose, that sank and found that these eight African divers, you know, the English, they tried to refloat the ship using kind of modern English technology. They fail. So they hire Italians who were considered the best European salvage divers. They failed. But one of those Italians went to Africa, went to actually Senegal and hired eight Wolof divers, brought them to England, and they salvaged the Mary Rose for, for a period of time. Where does this myth that black people can't swim really come from? It seems to really come about in the 20th century, maybe going back to the late 1800s. But really what happened is that in the United States, black people under slavery and after the abolition of slavery in 1866, they saw beaches, whether they were the ocean or rivers or lakes, as places of, of recreation and enjoyment. White people, white Americans, didn't really begin to see beaches in that same way until kind of starts and fits, but, you know, 1880s, but really after World War One, And as they saw 
that they could enjoy those places, they began to use racial violence to drive black people off. They would lynch people, they would throw their bodies into these, into waterways that African Americans had been swimming in. And so this discouraged African Americans from swimming. And so what happened is you had this kind of reversal in what was going on where not many white Americans knew how to swim in the 1800s. And then as this racialized violence was occurring, very few African Americans were capable to swim proficiently. And so the drowning death rate went up exponentially. And so by the 1860s, American Center for Disease Control actually began to label the black drowning death rate an epidemic because it was six to 10 times more higher than the white drowning death rate in the US. I've also often heard about drownings on the slave passage from Africa to America and the knowledge of those many who lost their lives in the water. Coupled with everything that you're talking about, it's no wonder that a culture of fear of the water developed. The rivers that were once a place of freedom and enjoyment for black people became a place of fear. But I think what's even more startling is that it really is in recent history that this myth came about. I mean, the past like 60, 70 years is where the myth really comes about, yeah. It actually became more than just kind of a myth. It became this kind of pseudoscientific fact. So there were actually university scholars, doctors, coming up with theories on why black people were drowning at higher, you know, were experiencing this higher drowning death rate than white Americans. And so there was this myth that black people's bones were denser than white people. It it just became kind of perpetuated. The U.S. Marine Corps actually in the 1990s wrote a kind of a report explaining why there were few black Marines in their special forces, and it was because their bones were denser and they were more likely to drown. It continues on into the, really into the 21st century. While studies have shown the bone mass does vary between different ethnicities, there is little evidence to suggest bone density impacts swimming. In fact, on average, professional swimmers, like most athletes, have denser bones than non-swimmers. Here you can see a really clear example of the negative impacts of racism, right? Like you don't let people swim and they drown. But if you say, oh, no, 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 it's not, it's not racism. Black people are biologically inferior. And that's what's causing the drowning death rate. It lets you sidestep the issue of race and racism, accessibilities, issues of accessibility. Because it's also, I mean, I should mention, you know, if you're looking at like urban swimming pools, What happened in the U.S. and in Britain starting in the 1880s is that you had swimming pools, the the development of these massive swimming pools, and they were places where people would go and swim, but primarily to bathe. And so they, at that point, they were gender segregated. So in the U.S. anyway, they were gender segregated and men, regardless of race and women, regardless of race, would swim in these swimming pools. But then again, after about World War II, families wanted to use these urban swimming pools as places to recreate. And so they became racially segregated. And what that meant was, so say if you have like New York City and they had 60 swimming pools, 10 might be for black people. And so you might say, okay, that's still somewhat significant. But the problem then is that, okay, you have these pools, but they weren't being staffed with lifeguards. They weren't being maintained. And so... Um, And they were so overcrowded that people couldn't even learn to actually swim. Like you might be able to get in the pools when there was water, but not actually swim. It lets you step to kind of, again, get around these issues of race and racism and how that's impacting the drowning death rate of African-Americans are experiencing. 
This issue of access to pools is not unique to the US and African Americans. It impacts a number of communities, be it because of religious beliefs, socioeconomic background, or gender identity, or even simply practical barriers that haven't been considered in pools designed for white, able-bodied people. To find out more about how accessibility to pools creates barriers to swimming for specific groups, I spoke to journalist, founder of the Black Swimming Association, and one of my closest friends, Saren Jones. My name is Saren Jones. I am a journalist and podcast producer, but I'm also the co-founder of the Black Swimming Association, which is a charity I set up three years ago now to encourage people from African, Caribbean and Asian backgrounds to be safe in and around water. Random question. Mm. How often did you cry in your goggles? Oh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> because it's right, it's such a safe space. Like, and it's a common thing in swimming that like you put your goggles on. If you're having a rough day, you put these goggles on, you dive in and you cry and no one will be the wiser. I used to cry for everything. It's funny because I think actually I definitely stopped crying at one point in my swimming career. And I think that I can now pinpoint that as being the point that it was or it started to be over for me. Oh, my gosh. Um, because it stopped being safe to feel that release and experience it. You know, this sounds really traumatic, but it's <laughs> it's actually quite comforting. You sit behind the film of these kind of mirrored goggles mm -hmm. and, you know, you swim up and down this pool and you're upset and you are able to release that feeling mm -hmm. into the water. And by the end of the session, it's not there anymore. By the end of the session, if you've if you've cried right, you could be a new kid coming out of that pool. Like you could have a whole layer just shed off from mm. a two and a half hour session. That serotonin. Yeah, totally. That dopamine hit differently. Beyond our time in the pool and our history with swimming, as you've alluded to and spoken to a little bit, one of the founding members of the Black Swimming Association, and you've recently just won project of the year from the National Lottery. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you so much. Can you tell me a little bit about the BSA, you know, a kind of simple top line mission statement, but what, what do you do? What's your aim? The BSA has been set up to encourage people, especially from Black and Asian communities in the UK, to be safe in and around water. It's all about drowning prevention and water safety awareness. It's funny to go from a conversation about us being competitive swimmers and doing all of this training to a conversation about the high levels of drowning in Black and Asian communities yeah. in the UK, right? And all around the world. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why those rates are so high? There are so many factors, you know. Um, we got asked this a lot, you know, in media, um, events, you know, just kind of the background of the charity. If we kind of like narrow it down and look at like the British perspective, mm. you have factors like, okay, let's start with accessibility. Pools are not that accessible. I mean that in the way that the best facilities are in the nicest neighbourhoods. They cost money to access them. Once you get to these facilities, they may not cater to people who are non-white. So, for example, women who are Muslim who want to be in women-only classes, even women who are Muslim, women who just want to be in women-only classes or 
people who, you know, identify as non-binary or as gender fluid and they want to have a safe space. Traditionally, pools didn't offer these kind of windows for people who just wanted to be with their own. Accessibility also kind of branches into swimwear because swimwear has only now started to change. It's been amazing to see like how swimwear has really started to evolve mm. with the times. You know, now we've got, you know, oversized swimming caps for black hair or longer hair. We've got modest swimwear, but still there's the issue of financing because the modest swimwear is really expensive. It's great that it exists, but, you know, can the average person spend £125 on an Adidas waterproof hijab and leggings and a top that she feels comfortable in? That's a very big ask, you know. You've got accessibility, you've got finance, you've got culture, which I've already kind of mentioned, but hair is a huge part of that. And that's something that I more personally decided to investigate and explore when I was a journalist, because hair is the reason my older sister quit swimming. She wanted to have what she called good hair. We know that chlorine is more damaging on Afro hair than it is on non-Afro hair. We know that black women spend nine times more than their white counterparts on hair services and products, whether mm. that is literal products that we use every day or wigs, weaves, braids, locks, relaxer, you name it. Are you going to get into chlorinated water for 30 minutes to ruin something that costs you a lot of money that will last a very long time? Most likely not. But then you also have present day issues that are also affecting people in these communities from getting into the water. You know, we have COVID and the, the aftermath of COVID. COVID exacerbated these pool closures, you know, Pools that did exist in black and brown areas in the UK aren't opening up again. And those that are opening up are struggling because of the cost of living, because these leisure centres can't afford to heat the pools, let alone mm. keep the centres open. So there are all these factors and it's such a nuanced issue. I haven't even mentioned like the whole social element of it, you know, the behaviours and attitudes people have towards swimming. Aquaphobia, myths of being heavy boned, um, near drowning experiences. Um, people first, second, third generation here where it was just not a priority to learn how to swim. The priority was to learn English, to assimilate, to get an education. The more I think about it, it's such a humongous task to tackle that we've taken on at the BSA. But we're doing it because nobody really did, Yeah, you know? It's the fact that every summer I switch on the TV and there's been a heat wave and somebody's drowned. That person always looks like us, always. And it's not coincidental. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, academic evidence because such records aren't actually kept. But it's something that we decided we just didn't want to see anymore because, like, why is it that people like us don't have that knowledge of what to do in an emergency? This isn't about kind of churning out more Black Olympians. It's about making sure people can go out and enjoy bodies of water and make it home. That's so powerful. And I think the picture you've painted really illustrates just how sport the institution of sports, it replicates the same structures that we see in society mm -hmm. every day, right? That those people who are marginalized because of their minority status in this instance, because of ethnicity um, and race, have worse outcomes. And the reality is that when it comes to sport, swimming can be deadly. And the work of the BSA, I think, cannot be understated specifically here in this country where we have the resources to make sure that this doesn't happen anymore. It's been really humbling this last year. We offer kind of water safety classes in Hackney every Thursday. Um, 
where we kind of have about 16 participants on average. As teachers, we get into the water with the participants and we just teach them for five consecutive weeks about water safety. So we teach them how to feel the water, Mm. what that feels like. We teach them how your body is a life-saving vessel. Different parts of your body can do different things. We teach you about how to uh, breathing, floating. And it's all kind of like combined with enjoyment. And then as a byproduct, a lot of our swimmers learn how to swim. But a lot of these people live in Hackney. Hackney has a ton of canals everywhere. You know, they live by water. They go, they go back home to Jamaica. They go to the sea or they go to Barbados and whatever, you know. But like they don't know how to be safe. And even when there are these facilities like, you know, Britannia Leisure Centre, we had one woman come into one of our sessions once and she said, I've lived in this borough my entire life. I've never set foot in this pool because I feel like it wasn't made for me. So we also try to empower our participants to know where their local pools are and to feel as if, you know, they have every right to be there. They have every right to enjoy the luxuries that they have to offer because it is in their neighbourhood. There's a lot of work to be done, but it's been a very, a very powerful year. You know, you guys are approaching this from a very practical, very hands-on perspective, but I also know that the BSA is seeking to advocate on the policy side as well. And with that in mind, you're undertaking some research. Yes pioneering research that hasn't happened before. As you mentioned, records aren't kept in this way. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, exactly. So we, obviously, like you said, we have the hands-on approach that we do with the Together We Can initiative. That's what our water safety program is called. But we also have the policy and advocacy side of the charity. So we have a fantastic research and insights team that has commissioned a project around the attitudes and behaviors specifically that adults have towards swimming. So this is unpicking those notions of aquaphobia, of being disengaged, really understanding why and like where this came from, just to really get to the bottom of like, okay, whatever comes out of this research, we can say, we've done this, we've investigated this, this can no longer be used as a barrier anymore. Because so many of us in the community use these reasons. I don't want to say excuses as if they're invalid because they're not. But a lot of people hide behind these. A lot of people don't get into the water because they have heard they have heavy bones. Therefore, they believe they have heavy bones. A lot of people won't get in the water because their mum told them water safety is staying away from the water. So they will not get in water. Mm. This isn't good enough anymore. You know, it's not because we're human. Like, you know, your child or your nephew or your niece is going to be curious one day or is going to be drinking one day and might be by water or is going to be on a jet ski one day because of peer pressure. And then what happens? Like, we can't afford to keep recycling this narrative anymore. And rolling the dice on people's lives. Totally. Totally. No one deserves that. No one deserves to lose somebody prematurely because of a skill that everybody should have. This is life and death we're talking about. Swimming is the only sport that can actually save your life. So we're not a learn-to-swim clinic. We're not, you know, going to teach you how to be the next Alice Deering. This is just about you knowing how to be safe so you can pass that information on to your loved ones. You know, I would really struggle with this when people ask me after my swimming career, you know, being the first black woman to swim for Great Britain, you know, why don't black people swim? But I think it's definitely put upon people and you must feel this way enormously, you know, to have the answers to these questions that you've now shown us are so complex and conflated by a myriad of different reasons. When you have your community sessions Mm -hmm. um, and you're engaging the community in these water safety practices, what's the one thing that has the most impact and that shifts the needle 
in terms of how they feel in the water, how they go away feeling. What's the one thing? Trust. Trust in themselves and trust in us, actually. We have a lot of people who come through our sessions who cry out of pure, genuine fear. And once they learn to A, trust us, that we are not going to let them drown because people assume immediately they're going to drown, even though the water level that we teach at is one meter point zero nine, very shallow. I'm five foot three. This comes up to my breasts. Mm. Right? There's still that fear of drowning. Once they learn to trust us, the teachers, once they learn to trust the water, because as you know, like when we were kids, at least for me, like the, the, the lesson that I always got told and I, I carry on is the water's your friend. If you fight the water, the water will always win. Like you have to be good to the water. And once they learn to trust themselves, that's when the switch flips. That's when it's like, okay, I can do this. So it all comes down to trust. But getting there, that's the hard part. I'm all too familiar with the factors that are responsible for the low numbers of black people who swim. But I was curious to know whether the same issues are responsible for the statistics within Asian communities, or if there may be a unique set of barriers at play. I spoke to Samaya Mughal, the presenter and producer of Brown Girl Can't Swim, a podcast that explores the cultural boundaries that stopped her learning to swim during her childhood. I'm Samaya Mughal. I am a telly and radio presenter for the BBC based in the East Midlands. I'm also a producer, I'm an actor and um, a very anxious human being that's about five foot with the hashtag pint size Pakistani. That's me in a sentence. I started the podcast because I was interviewing Alice Deering on The Breakfast Show on BBC Radio Leicester, which was the show I was doing at the time. Alice was talking about the challenges that the black community may face when swimming. She was talking about having swimming caps that were big enough. She was talking about myths around bone density. And I saw a girl that was not far off my age doing something amazing for her community and being a role model and an example. And I looked to my community. I'm a British, Pakistani woman, a Muslim woman. And I couldn't really see the same sort of conversation. It's not to say it doesn't exist. I hope it does in some form, but I just couldn't see it. So I decided to do something about it. I'm quite gobby. I've got a radio show. So I did the thing that I guess I know best, which is started a conversation. Could you talk a bit about the specific boundaries that are stopping people from South Asian communities learning to swim? I think the first thing to note when it comes to speaking about boundaries or barriers, I always like to say perceived boundaries and barriers. And that's not because they don't exist. It's more because if you say something's a barrier, it can feel like something you can't overcome. Right. But if you put a word like potential or perceived in front of it, for me, psychologically, at least, it makes me feel like there's a resolution we can come to here. The second thing I would say is that I am a British Pakistani Muslim woman, so I can only speak from that experience. The South Asian community is beautifully diverse. You've got Indians, Bangladeshis, Hindus, Sikhs. So I can only speak to my very specific experience. However, it is something that is echoed in the community, having spoken to hundreds of people. So the first thing that I would say is whether swimming is a priority. Was it something that your parents learned? Was it something, therefore, they felt was important to pass on to you? In my case, my dad can't swim. He raised me. He's a doctor. And I find it so ironic that he has this job where he can save people's lives. But if you put him anywhere near water, 
God forbid, he would be completely helpless. He didn't learn to swim because he was born and bred in Pakistan. And swimming is not part of the education system there like it is here in the UK. You go swimming in school, right? The second thing I would say, especially from the perspective as a Muslim woman, is modesty. So in Islam, modesty is important, but modesty in itself is such a subjective thing, right? I could wear a mini skirt or a three quarter length pair of leggings or a full pair of leggings, like full leg pair of leggings. And we would all have a different understanding and experience of whether we deemed that to be modest or not. So that in itself is difficult, which was why it was so difficult over Brown Girl Can't Swim, because what I was trying to find was a swimming costume which spoke to my British culture. I was born and bred here. I've worn normal swimming costumes in front of my mates my whole life, but I have never worn anything like that in front of my dad. I wouldn't even wear a sleeveless top in front of my dad. So Brown Girl Can't Swim brought together that Pakistani side, which is more conservative, the Islamic side, and then my British side. And it was difficult. It was really hard. I would say modesty is definitely a thing because when you think about going swimming, What's the first type of swimming costume that comes to your head? It's going to be shorts or maybe a bikini or your arms and your legs and all that out. But the other thing that I found out over Brown Girl Can't Swim is that in Islam, swimming is actually encouraged. I didn't know this. So there's four sports that are encouraged within the faith. Horse riding, archery, wrestling and swimming. All because in some way they're like, gonna help you <laughs> i mean i don't know about the horse riding but um the swimming like life skills so it was really interesting that there are these things that we could see as barriers like it being a priority or clothing which can come from the faith but at the same time the very religion encourages you to swim the other reason samaya started the podcast was because of the statistics or lack thereof swimming is a life skill and every single year every single summer people lose their lives and it's not to say that if you can swim then you are you're not going to drown god forbid because actually a lot of people that do get themselves into sticky situations can swim but the point that i'm making is that if you don't know the basic skills when it comes to life saving you don't know to float on your back you know you don't know about cold water shock and you don't know what you need to do in a situation where you you do find yourself in a challenging scenario, whether that's yourself or somebody else, you're going to be more susceptible to be, you know, to find it hard to get yourself out of it. So I guess the first thing is that it's a skill that can save your life, which is why I find it baffling that there are so many people from my community that cannot swim, yet there appears to have been, before Brown Girl Can't Swim at least, very little conversation around it. I did speak with Swim England at the time who have since released and commissioned some data after Brown Girl Can't Swim to look at the South Asian community specifically. As I suspected at the time of doing Brown Girl Can't Swim but couldn't quantify at the time because the data just didn't exist, Swim England found that on average only 32% of the South Asian community in England are able to swim 25 metres unaided compared to the national average 80%. They also found when participating in swimming on average across gender, nationality and religion, if you're a female, Pakistani and Muslim, you're likely to face the highest number of barriers. I don't know what's more shocking, those stats or the fact that there wasn't an official report until you made the podcast. What's the reaction been since you made the series? I have had so many people reach out to me to say that they're now learning to swim because of Brown Girl Can't Swim. 
It makes me so emotional when I actually stop and comprehend that, that this little podcast and this little series of BBC News that I did all by myself has now contributed to people enjoying and wanting to learn to swim. When I first announced that I was going to be doing a campaign about it on my Instagram, I just, honestly, I remember waking up the next morning thinking, feeling quite overwhelmed actually, just thinking, I totally knew that this was an issue, but I just didn't realize how big an issue amongst adults more generally. Learning to swim as an adult was scary. And it was scary because I'd never really comprehended the mental element of it. The physical side of it, yeah, it can feel awkward and a bit tricky, but actually as an adult, the thing you don't realize is how much your own headspace can get in the way because you might be scared whether that's of deep water or just feeling like you look a bit silly. And I think the difference between adults and kids is kids can just be fearless, right? They don't necessarily have that fear of what other people are going to be thinking about them and how they're going to look. Whereas as an adult, the most difficult thing for me to learn to swim was me versus my mind. And that really came to the fore halfway through Brown Girl Can't Swim, where I saw a guy almost drown in a swimming pool. He's fine. He features on the podcast. We're now friends. He's cool. But to see one of your greatest fears almost happen right in front of you made all of the anxiety I already had about learning to swim so much worse. And hopefully, you know, adults generally learning to swim will not experience something like that. But it was scary, it was a mental test, but it was the most unbelievably rewarding experience at the same time. A type of joy and elation and confidence boost that I could have never comprehended. Being told you can't swim is the myth that became a reality for so many. Overcoming this belief might be the biggest barrier of all. One woman helping to dispel this dangerous misconception is Alice Deering, who we heard from earlier in this series. You'll remember Alice as a competitive swimmer and in 2021 made history as the first black woman to swim at the Olympics for Team GB. She's also the co-founder of the Black Swimming Association, alongside Saren Jones, who we spoke to earlier this episode. The BSA is just looking to get everybody and anybody swimming. And yes, it is called the Black Swimming Association, but that is where we believe we need to put our efforts at the moment to the black and Asian communities, to people who have been told swimming's not for them, who believe swimming's not for them, who have in some cases been pushed into other sports, are told that their bones are too dense to swim, to float, that, oh my God, I had one woman one time tell me that a, a swimming teacher told her that she couldn't swim because black people had like heavy bottom and hips and they sink in the water. And she was like, I didn't really believe it. So I got in and taught myself to swim. And I was like, good for you. Like that's, I'm so happy to hear that. But then for every person that they didn't believe it and they went and taught themselves to swim, there'll be three or four people who do believe it. And why, why wouldn't you believe the swimming teacher? You know, they're the person in the institution, they understand what's happening. And you probably think, okay, it's not for me. I'll just stay away from water. We want to stop that. We want to combat those issues, get education and knowledge in and get black people swimming and Asian people and feeling comfortable in the water and also basic water safety because that is a huge factor of the BSA now is making sure people have basic water safety to protect themselves in and around water. It's amazing how racist mythologies and narratives 
that we only think of as being harmful to people's emotional well-being, and in this context, harmful to someone's ability to go far in the sport, are actually operating on a much deeper level. People would often ask me, was it hard to succeed? Because there were all of these other people telling me that black people couldn't swim. And well, I could swim, so that obviously wasn't the problem. But I think what's interesting is the way these things take a hold of a society through its institutions, through power structures, and they create imbalances that in this instance actually result in death. And so what's really important is to highlight and acknowledge the fact that this isn't just a mythology that is making people feel bad or sad. This is something that's threatening people's lives. I know how hard swimming against all of these narratives was in my time. But Alice, what about your own experiences growing up in the world of competitive swimming as a young mixed race girl? I suppose in terms of me and swimming with race, I've always just like protected myself in a way that I've like closed off, I put myself in a bubble. I kind of spoke about it a little bit with my family. My mum, who is, so I'm mixed race, my mum's black, my dad's white, and me and my mum rarely spoke about race with swimming. And I actually think it was the best approach for me because it is really white, it is really white. That's, that's a blatant fact of it. And um, I think when you start to look into it and understand um, the potential racial undertones or the little comments here and there, when you start to piece them together, especially as a little girl growing up, you know, I got into the sport competitively aged eight um, from Birmingham, so really diverse area. So at school and didn't like everyone's just everyone, mix of, mix of everything, really nice. Went to swimming, there was still a mix, but very much like dialed down. And then when I got to about 22 years old, I realized that I felt mature enough to start having these conversations and start speaking about this openly because I've always been a black woman, I've always been a black girl. I've been a swimmer since I was eight. I could have had these conversations when I was like 15, 16. I don't think I would have had the maturity and the emotional development to talk about this without getting over emotional. And I still get emotional about it now, don't get me wrong, it's, it's, part, it's who I am. You've got to be careful how you portray yourself, especially as a black woman. I just, I guess I'm a bit hyper-conscious of that and that's why it took me so long to kind of have these conversations. But then equally, I'm really fortunate that I'm in a place where I can have these conversations whilst I'm still competing. I mean, 20 years ago, absolutely no chance. I would have been given the platform or scope or response or respect that I've been given now. People are listening. People want to listen and people care, or I truly believe they do anyway. And I have been given those platforms, which I'm really grateful for and will keep using to amplify my message, the ESA's message, to just get more people in the water. And I think I'm just fortunate I'm in a time and place where it is acceptable for me to speak about it and that I want to speak about it at the same time. And the more we talk about the issues surrounding race in the pool, the more we will educate decision makers on how to create more welcoming, inclusive swimming environments. And as pools and swimwear becomes more inclusive too, the more confident people will feel when getting in the water. And as confidence grows, more black and brown people will learn to swim. The more representation we will see at a professional level, which in turn will inspire more people to get into the water and dispel myths surrounding race and swimming. Until one day, I hope, the only type of race we'll be talking about in the pool will be the competitive kind.
You've been listening to Physical Capital. On the next episode, we go beyond the pool into the world of open water and cold water swimming. My first open water experience was absolute hell. Took me really long to finish it. Was a marathon swim. It was the first time I'd ever been in water, in open water, sorry. And it was freezing and I hated it. And I got out and said, I'd never do it again. But they were like, oh, well you finished the race. So we'll take you to European juniors where it's only a 5K and the water's much warmer and it's in Turkey. And I was like, I get a free trip to Turkey. Yeah, I was like, why not? Like, why wouldn't I? It's hard, it's a really tough physical effort. I'm going through hell. You're swimming through jellyfish, the water's salty, it can be cold, it can be hot, but it's worth every bit of pain, it's worth every bit of discomfort for the stuff that I get out of it and for the enjoyment that I get from it in another way.